0: In all of the sadness and tragedy of the last couple of weeks, I did notice an argument, an anti gun argument. It's fairly weak. I want to respond to it. But first, I listened to an argument amongst two Christians about race. I want to tell you about it on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is often the case, I saw something and or listened to something that I found interesting and compelling and you, my friends, those that I actually know and those of you that are just digital friends that I don't know, I want to share with you the insightful information I garnered from a debate I recently listened to and we'll start there in just a moment. Welcome to the Corey Act Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. I think you have already probably know, my name is Corey Truax, that's why the show is called that. Amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beechwood Church. Beechwood Church meets at 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, and you're invited. We would love to have you. After we're finished with this first which, uh, this first topic, which is probably going to be the, maybe the first two segments, I have other things I want to do on the show, but there's a lot of good here that requires thoughtfulness. And it comes from this recent set of debates from the Gospel Coalition. I recently recommended those to you, and I this is the fourth one. I recommend it again. So now they have a discussion. Uh, everyone's a believer in the room. Everyone affirms the core doctrines. Obviously, in the end, one person might have a more biblical, uh, a more biblically faithful perspective on a topic, but you do have something healthy. People who are believers in Jesus firm brothers and sisters who affirm the other as a brother and sister, both having affirmed statements of faith that the Gospel Co- the gospel Coalition has, and they're solid, to hear them disagree, sometimes vehemently, strongly, but respectfully, and, re- and recognize they can all be in the faith together, even if we think they're profoundly wrong, that's healthy. It's a good thing to have. So there's one out there on... Uh, whether the church has gone too woke or what woke, wokeness is, there's one on abortion and there's one on gun control. Really, the one on abortion is about pro-lifeism, whether or not pro-life movement is about abortion or is should it be about a lot of things. And I went into that debate thinking it should be about a lot of things, but I left that debate thinking it's actually way too much of a burden to place on this movement that's been so focused for 50 years. To say to that movement, no, you have to be responsible for every kid everywhere, every mom everywhere, otherwise you can't be an activist about this one thing. The guy who argued that did a great job. Said, yeah, No, we, we have been focused. You don't get to come along and tell us what to add to our movement or tell us our, our movement is illegitimate or illegitimate. Anyway, it's a good debate and I would highly encourage listening to all of those. They're at tgc.org. They're also on YouTube. They're easy to find. Now, Here's the one I just recently listened to. Gospel Coalition invited two men. I believe the first, actually well, let me see if I can just pull up their names. I think well, I can't find it. One was Brian Davis, I remember. I think the other one other one was Justin Gibney. Brian Davis and Justin Gibney. Two black men to address or to answer this question. How should the church address racial injustice? That's the question. How should the church address racial injustice? And certainly, these two believers came with very different perspectives. I want to play for you the guy I disagreed with more first. This is the Gibney guy, and he, he did a first nine minutes or so sounding a lot like secular progressive people do about race that it's, it really is the fundamental, defining element of the culture in the moment, that nothing could be more important. That's often how he sounded. I don't think I'm putting words into his mouth or putting a sentiment into his mouth by saying that. So he, he spent his first little bit basically making that case. It's the most important thing there is, and then he actually does. I do respect this highly. As a brother, I respect that he did come with very specific Oh, very specific. He came with specific prescriptions, because one of the things I have found in this debate that it's a little frustrating is that people want something; they want some kind of action. It's very, a uh, very muddy, very amorphous, and you don't ever know. Well, when did we win? When did we get there? What What is the actual endpoint? I think that's on purpose. There's a lot of folks who don't want an endpoint. It's just everybody feel bad and lament until the end of time and don't ever actually accomplish anything so i respect highly this guy came actually with some ideas so again the question is how does the church address racial injustice here was one
1: believer with his ideas but allow me to uh, provide a, a few very specific things that the church can do in regard to racial justice and I would I would like you to note this isn't an exhaustive exhaustive list and none of these involve government mandate. This is what the church can do internally. Um, and I appreciate that.
0: Uh, that qualification, he's not saying have the government force this and require it, but just voluntarily, he thinks people of good conscience would do the following.
1: And, uh, the other things may be a separate conversation. The first one is a race uh, history curriculum. I've been blown away by how many Christians simply don't know the truth about American history when it comes to race. And you can see that from the numbers I just just gave. But we must reckon with the truth and with some of our failures. I was, uh, I was shown recently some excerpts from a, a history book that was used in a Christian school that said that the Civil War was primarily about states' rights. And it went all through with these false equivalencies between the Union and the Confederacy.
0: So he's got first idea here is the church, if we care, We'll come up with our own history curriculum and teach it to people. Now, even in his presentation there, he's talking about some Civil War stuff. I would wonder two things. One, what was the year of that publication? But then second, that one is actually muddy. There's it's Absolutely, Civil War is in part over slavery. It was in the Confederate Constitution. I can't stand when people very ahistorical says, that wasn't about slavery. Man, that document they wrote up sure did say it was, but it was also s- some muddy stuff. And so i I hear him. I hear this idea. I'm sympathetic. I just wonder wh- what's our measurement for success? Who gets to write it? And are we adding that now to our our creeds and confessions? This is part of part of our church documentation.
1: As truth tellers, as people who are committed to the truth. Christian denominations and institutions should come together and endorse a curriculum that accurately depicts American history, the good and the bad. For this next one, I would ask us to step out of our ideological boxes and consider it from a biblical standpoint. The other thing we can do deals with voters' rights. By law, we know that black people have been disenfranchised in this country far longer than they've had franchise. That's indisputable. In support of equality and human agency, all Christians should come together and support voters' rights or at least support research to evaluate the fairness in our system. Why? I guess, fine. We, this,
0: this almost sounds like another direction of folks who doubt voter outcomes, who doubt election outcomes. We actually have a really good voter system. I mean, fine. Yes. I mean, count on me. You can count on me to support the right for every qualified person to vote. I just know that we don't have much of an issue there, but okay, I hear you, and yes, you have an advocate in me on that policy.
1: If some are right and there's nothing to be found, then we'll know there's nothing to be found. But if your brothers and sisters feel there is an issue, given the history of this country, it's worth looking into.
0: I don't know that I agree with that sentiment. If my brothers and sisters feel something, then I can help them work through what they feel, what if their feelings are wrong? What if they're factually incorrect? It's my job to lead them out of it. So and yeah, I'm I'm all again, hardcore, I think it should be a uh, a Christian principle. Yes. Or we are for everyone every qualified voter having no encumbrance to them being able to do it. But if we have just the same way that I would say if you have someone living in a QAnon conspiracy, living in a world that doesn't exist, in your church, you want to lead them out of it. And if you also think there's a conspiracy that there's mass voter suppression, that's also a conspiracy. It's not real. And we've we got to lead each other out of those things. I won't give a ton of time to this last one, but at least, again, again, I have some some respect. Hey, How, how should the church deal with racial injustice? Well, come up with your own curriculum and teach a, a curriculum about the history of injustice. Support voters' rights. And then here is his third one.
1: Now this next one, I would ask everyone to step out of their ideological boxes for a second and think about this from a biblical standpoint. We must pursue the principle of reparations. So real quick, I do appreciate that. Hey, let's talk biblically. This is what I try to do constantly. Come
0: out of your ideology, come out of your background, come out of your neighborhood and what you grew up with and let's think biblically about what the topic is and his topic here is reparations.
1: Some Christian institutions that are operating today benefited even from slavery. For example, we know that both the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Princeton acknowledged benefiting from revenue tied to slavery. For Princeton, for instance, they said that 30 to 40% of their revenue during the pre Civil War period was tied to slavery. Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson do an excellent job of talking about this in their book, Reparations. I propose that majority churches who are able should find black churches and brown churches in their area to support them financially with best practices, not culturally driven strings attached.
0: It's bold request, but again, at least it's clear. He is straight up saying, if your church has a bunch of white people in it, you need to find, I would would assume he would say, a biblically faithful church that's primarily black attended and just... Give them money. That's his, that is his statement on how we should address racial injustice is rich white churches find lower-income black churches and give them money.
1: We should create business opportunities and educational opportunities for black and brown communities.
0: Now, that's not, not reparations and not controversial. This is actually the world I want. The world I want, and I think the biblical worldview world— is one where everyone has equal opportunities to succeed and advance their own lives. Yeah, that's, that's actually what I want. It's why why I uh, I so oppose government being involved in so much stuff. I'm trying to get to a world where everyone can succeed, and the, the less government interference there is, the more likely it is that r- random citizens from... Listen. Whoop, whoops, wrong button. Uh, the, uh, the random citizens can get ahead. Uh, we'll let him finish up here.
1: We serve a mighty God. Racism isn't permanent, nor is it indestructible. But we must be willing to sacrifice and have the moral imagination to heal a polarized church.
0: So I'm, again, even glad he, he says, I am asking you for something. It's sacrifice. It will hurt if you do these things. I can at least highly respect that. So that's Giboney when he He's asked the question, what should the church do when it comes to racial injustice? Well, there should at least be a, uh, like a racial education curriculum that churches teach. We should support voting rights. Okay, cool. And where possible, pursue reparations, and he put a definition on that. That was his to-do list. The response came from a gentleman that I, I've already forgotten the name of. I think his last name is Davis. He pastors a church in... Brian Davis is his name. He pastors a church in Virginia. His response was very different. His response was... At basic, stick to the ministry of the gospel, stick to preaching the word, and form Christians, form Jesus followers that do justice. So not programs, not specific prescriptions, but form better Christians who want to see a more just and verdant world. One of the things I noticed in the mismatch in this particular debate is this guy you're about to hear from, Davis, he's a pastor. The other guy you heard from, Giboney, He's an attorney. He's an activist. And so the pastoral heart of this Davis guy comes out hardcore because one of the things he'll say here, I don't think I have audio on this part, he'll say, I, I don't i don't think I have the authority to place the burden on my people to say, if you really care, you'll go through this class about racial history. If you really care, you're going to be an activist for voters' rights, and if you really care, you're going to pursue reparations. His heart is, I, I can't... I can't have an extra biblical burden on my people. I can't place that on them. I can't bind their conscience to match your conscience. There's some wisdom in that. But ultimately, his his response was, let's just preach the gospel, make better Christians, leave their consciences free, and then we'll have these... We'll have these outcomes. I actually think I saved that for you. Let's see what I have on sound. But
2: I'm going to take some distance to see how they connect. So here are 10 brief aims that this kind of gospel ministry seeks to produce in every saint.
0: Now, I'm not going to take you through all 10 because we only have a 50-minute show. So let me take you through the the cliff notes. He says, uh, if we if we preach the gospel we make better Christians, then we'll have Christians who pray. And prayer is a, is a weapon in this battle. He says, we'll have Christians who feel. That's actually one piece of audio I do want you to hear. I think I am off by about 10 seconds, but you'll get a little lead up to where he says, if we preach the gospel and make better Christians, they'll feel the way they should feel about the topic, and those feelings will lead to right actions. Actually, in that second point about feeling, he talked about the word lament, that we would, that we would feel the sadness, there'd be lamentation. He made a great point. That we would have the lamentation, but then not weaponize the lamentation. That we go to people and say, well, I'm sad. I'm sad and angry, and so you have to give me what I want. There are people who weaponize their emotions, demand you respond the way they want you to. There is there is one piece of audio from his 10 points here that I do want to play, because I think he missed on something. So he says the way we respond to racial injustice is make Christians better Christians, more in the uh, image of Christ. So they pray more. So they feel and lament. And then he says that, number three, we should expect evil. I want to correct one thing or at least respond to one thing he said. Here is Pastor Davis with his third point talking about how we should expect evil.
2: It aims to form believers that expect evil. Scripture calls this the present evil age. We are not going to make this age better. Therefore we should expect a profound misunderstanding of justice and a profound amount of injustice in the world. Now we certainly want to work to restrain as much evil as possible, but we need to appreciate we are in an evil age.
0: I used to believe that all of that, and I don't think I believe it anymore. I think I used I would say all we're trying to do is hold back the evil, but we know it's all going to fall apart anyway. We live in an evil age, it's helpless. And so just be okay, like expect it. And because you can expect it, you just live with it. I don't believe that anymore. My eschatology has changed that I don't think, eschatology means the things you think about how all of all of time will end. So while I, I agreed more with Pastor Davis in this, uh, oh, excuse me, yeah, it's Brian Davis, more in this debate, that one was, was I was not on board with. We actually can make this better. If we preach the gospel, make more Christians, make people more in the image of Christ, we're not expecting evil. We're actually expecting to destroy evil. Right here now, even in this age, in this earth. Yes, it's an evil age. It doesn't have to stay that way. Let me go through the rest of these just really quickly. He says if we will just respond to racial injustice by making better Christians, then they will pray, they'll feel and act out of that feeling. They will they will expect evil, they'll expose evil, they'll become people who are zealous for good works, and he expounds upon that saying, for some people that will be protesting and and being an activist, or for some folks it's voting, or it's just quietly living their lives faithfully. So saying to both sides, someone who does go to a protest for something, not, not putting your conscience on them saying, you can't do that, you can't do activism that way, but also the activists and the protesters looking back at other people and saying, you have to show up. If you don't show up, you're not doing the right Christian thing. There's a lot of good works, and we as believers can't bind each other by what we think are those good works. He says, if we will take this strategy on dealing with racial injustice, then we'll have people who are full of charity, that are believers who trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. Another big one they got into was, if we do this, we'll have people who find unity in Christ over their over their ethnicity. We need that in a time of slightly rising white supremacy, in a time of ethnic identity where we're, where we're being told by a cultural milieu, one of the single most important thing about you, maybe the most important thing about you, is your ethnicity. The message of the gospel and Christianity comes over top that and says, it's an important part of your identity. It's not it's not the most important. Christ is the most important, and that's how we all rejoice and hope together. As he was one of his final points. And he finished by just saying, let's keep the gospel first. All right, so that's the setup. They have given their, what's in real debate, called their positive construction. One guy says, we need programs. The church needs to do these things to adjust, adjust. Uh, excuse me, to address racial injustice, like a curriculum and advocating for voters' rights and pursuing reparations. And another guy says, preach the gospel, make better Christians. And by nature, they will pursue justice for all people. Now, when we come back, I want to get into some other sound bites from this debate that I think are instructive and helpful as we think about this as Christians in the world where we're living. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of The True Act Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. Two believers with Orthodox faith sit down to talk about how the church in America should address racial injustice, and it was a really interesting debate that we're going through together here on The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's easy to do. Hope you will. You can also find me at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com, Email me stuff for the show. I'd love to cover it with you. All right, so here we have the two sides. One side says the way the church should address it is programmatic. These are the things we must do to address it. The other one says preach the gospel, make good Christians, and faithful Christians will behave in a way that inspires justice, that we would want a world that treats everyone rightly. That's the. Those are the two sides of it. Now, from there... Admittedly, I pulled five or six sound bites and I forgot to label them. I don't usually do that. So I'm going to just play the sound bite, sound bite that I pulled and react to it as we go with kind of flying blind here on whatever we're going to listen to. And so just some highlights from the debate and we'll keep uh, keep going here. I, I want to do it because of course over the last, let's call it decade, this has been one of the more divisive topics in the church and amongst Christians. So I just want us thinking clearly. I mean, I suspect in my own audience, some of you land more on programmatic things, because I, I sort of do. Not to the extent that this guy who's debating, the Gibbony guy, I don't land on it to the degree that he does, but I also just think that the key to everything is people being made more of the image of Christ. And so maybe you come somewhere in between of these guys, and that's all I'm asking you to do is listen to them, and let's think through it together. Here's a little bit more from that debate. Brian you make the dis- the clear distinction in when you were talking between so this is the moderator asking Brian Davis the pastor from Virginia for some clarification on something between what the individual is called to versus the institution of the church and you you said and I'm I'm going to paraphrase you I'm I'm not going to quote you specifically uh it would be different if we were in say Nazi Germany or slavery how is that different
2: I think you so Galatians six, as you have opportunity, I think based on where we're going to be situated historically, uh, we're going to have unique opportunities to love our neighbors, right? I think it's important to, in one sense, maybe de-escalate some of the application, just because it's important. We appreciate that We are. We are. This is not 18, you know, 55. You know.
0: That's why I saved that soundbite. What he just said is something even Bill Maher, a white liberal, you know, West coastal liberal guy said recently, can we, are we willing to bring the temperature down and say, yes, there are still issues to deal with. We aren't dealing with slavery anymore. Are we allowed? And the answer for a lot of folks is no. But for the Christian, as we talk about it, that actually is important. It's important that we deal with the world as it is, currently still experiencing injustice and also a great deal less injustice. Less is not enough. But sometimes this is talked about with such fervency and intensity that we act like, or some people act like, we're still dealing with the, the situation in 1855 or 1955. But that's not the case. We have a very different world now, and so let's deal with it in the world in which we live. That's definitely why I saved that one. Uh, next, we'll just play the clip. It looks like it's our friend Mr. Gibney, the attorney. He has something for us, uh, one other highlight from this debate
1: comes to ideological conservatives have never given an inch on racial justice unless being forced by the world's laws to do so that is shameful we should feel some type of way about that so i hope that slows us down a little bit when we make the compare of course we know the what the world is and all that but why did it take the world to make that change internally
0: i remember why i saved this he said uh he wanted to say to his ideological conservative brothers that's me so my my conservatism is below my Christianity, but I'm obviously a very conservative dude. He wants to say to people like me, while none of you did anything, it was a secular world that made this a deal. And I should have labeled that as, what an ugly accusation. What an ugly thing to say about people you don't know and people that you call brothers and sisters. None of us, even going back to the 50s and 60s in that movement, some some of us might have been neutral and did nothing some were absolute problems and in sin in their activity but just to paint with one big broad brush if you were you know a white christian in the, in the west you know you didn't do anything and so you know, you, what a what an ugly accusation that was against us all and it tells me something about his his attitude and something to be careful of that if you don't if someone doesn't think like you you got to be careful not to accuse them of just not caring at all and not, not ever having done anything. It actually wouldn't be hard to refute him at all, but we don't have time for it, so let's continue. Uh, by context of where this clip is, I think this is part of the justification or clarification on reparations as an activity the church should take part in to adju- to address racial
1: injustice. Right? If That means our hearts aren't, aren't right. So I, I don't disagree with you when it comes to, I don't think I've said anything that the Bible, I don't think I've demanded that people do anything that the Bible didn't say. If I look at, even if we look at um, Covenant Lawsuit.
0: Ah, uh, no, I know. Okay, so I saved this one. He's about to try to use Bible to make some points about, well, how the church should operate in reparations. So he's, he's interacting with the idea that, well, let's just make good Christians, and good Christians will make good justice. And the Gibbon is responding, no, we, we need to do more than that. We need to be using system structures programs to address this issue. And then he starts using Bible here to justify his position I think not using it well, and I'll address that as we go.
1: They weren't just about immorality; they're about injustice. They're about how the poor were treated. They're about partiality in the courts. You look at Amos five, and we can go from we can go on and on about that. When even when we talk about the, the reparations conversation,
0: well, real quick, Amos five don't just go past that. Amos five is the very famous uh, "Let justice roll down" passage, and that's a very specific thing. Amos was seeing powerful people in the marketplace and in some of the religious circles cheat, lie, steal from those who didn't know better. Those who didn't know they were being, often didn't know they were being cheated. And he was saying, hey, you people who are doing the wrong thing to those people, there's justice coming for you. Now, that's a different ball game than saying you are the great, great, great grandchild of someone who did a terrible thing. And so we're, we're coming for you. You can't make that kind of equivalency. Amos is talking to a people at a time in a particular situation. If you're trying to apply that over centuries, I think you're applying the Bible wrongly.
1: Within the church, I mean, that's, you know, you can see that in Exodus 21 22. You can see that in Leviticus 6. You can see it in um, uh, Numbers 5.
0: I checked every single one of those to make sure I was correct. In the law of God, you have calls of, of different types of lawsuits or justice for lost people revenue, lost property, lost animals because they were part of your infrastructure for how you took care of yourself. And that's what those parts of the law deal with. In a civil manner, when you have cost someone something, when you've taken some something from someone, you've broken something that belongs to someone else, you are to pay it back. That's that's what the 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 reparation is. Pay back what you took, stole, or broke. And sometimes it says give it back, return back what you took, and then another 5% or 10%, or give some more back than what you took. It was almost like a punitive damage. Give back what you took, make it right, and then give some more as a punishment to you. But again, sir, what does that very specific thing that says, hey, you who did the wrong thing, the person you wronged is standing right there. Now you pay that person back now over centuries of time, how do you do that? I've made this point a lot on the show. The idea, just the concept of it, isn't necessarily bad. But to apply that, like there's a lot of clarity into the modern world, there's a lot of authority this guy's taking that does not belong to him, and I think using scripture poorly to do it. I have three more sound bites. Let's work through them. Here we go. I think who's speaking here is Mr. Gibbony.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think obviously reparations have become an ideological buzzword. And so people here and they, they just jump back. I'm not I'm not I don't even think we have to go there. We can go straight to the Bible and have some of those conversations about what that's what that's looked what that looks like. And I think it's about repairing a community. It's objective fact. And I don't think people should be able to deny that things have been stolen from African-Americans and, and other minorities. That's objective fact. I think we have to deal with that. I think. So I agree.
0: Yes. Especially historically. Stolen. Yes. Not just and not distant past. I mean, in the fairly recent past, I've covered on the show many times, I think the most enduring economic damage was that redlining. and We're all finding it out in the upstate of South Carolina right now. If you bought a house like I did 13, 14, 15 years ago, you have have created a wealth opportunity because of the housing market right now. Property ownership, one of the most important financial uh, instruments you could have. And things like redlining caused that for generations not to happen for our black brothers and sisters and black Americans even outside the faith. So were there things stolen? Yes. But you better be specific. Who stole what? And how is that to be restored?
1: When we run away from that, that's problematic. So how do you, how do you restore that? This should never, for Christians, this should never be about being forced to do that. So I'm not saying we got to force every church to do this, this, and that. It's like, what are we compelled to do through the gospel? Now, the other thing that I would say is I've I've provided data, right? The data from Barna says people are saying oppression isn't a big thing, right? They're saying more over 50% of white Christians are saying, actually, this never actually happened. Which was shocking to me. I believe you. That (laughs) that shocked me.
0: Yeah, it shocks me too. And it's, there was a, a study he sh- he had, I mean, it's one study, we should get more data, that had 50%, like w- one out of every two white Christians saying, yeah, you know, there wasn't much oppression in the history. Of course, that's absurd. It was one of the worst systems and most prejudiced and ethnically biased systems in- on the planet. It was very, very bad. But again, I'm just asking for some specificity from this guy. If you're asking me as a pastor and a church leader, what... What do do we do when we know someone has been wronged or we know one of our people has wronged someone else? Well, we call them to repentance, and then we call them to action. Pay back and make right what you did. But you're trying to apply that to people who didn't do something to make right some— I'm not saying there's not enduring consequences. There's obviously enduring consequences. But what you want from other people who didn't cause the consequences, that's a thats a question of your own sense of justice. I'm not calling it outside the faith. I'm not calling it straight up anti-biblical, but I think there's a better biblical understanding of what justice means and how to go about it. Two more sound bites. Here we go. So the doctrine of reparative justice, how would you apply that today? Again, not nationally, within the
2: church and our institutions. What I appreciate about what our brother's saying is, uh, there ought to be a longing. If there's someone we've wronged, that we're able to rectify the situation, that it is it is good and it is godly to do that.
0: Amen. Where we know my actions, my activity, has deleteriously affected someone, I want to make that right. And I might only just recently found out this one decision I made, this uh, one conversation I had, it really negatively affected someone. I want to go make that right. There's something tangentially, not directly, but tangentially related here with Jesus saying, if you're going to offer an offering and you have anything against your brother, go make it right. Go go offer reconciliation and forgiveness. Make things right before even coming in to worship or to offer. That's a great instinct for those that, that put forth that argue for reparations it is good to repair and to reconcile between people who have one has wronged the other that's a good instinct but I don't think that's what's being argued
2: so I I agree with that we say the the kind of doctrinal category of reparations not something I particularly adhere to I think it has some pretty significant uh flaws for me um But I guess maybe even coming down at a different level, I mean, part of me is just, I'm thankful to the Lord, just as he's describing maybe some of the stuff he's seen, I just have a completely different testimony as a Christian. I've been in wonderful churches. I've been in wonderful multi-ethnic churches.
0: I got to cut this guy short, but he makes a very good point here that what he has seen in his church experience is a lot of people doing justice and a lot of people fighting against ethnic prejudice. And a lot of people trying to make things right. And so it does seem like one person is painting a world that is just steeped in horrific racism. It's everywhere you look. It makes it the air we breathe. I'm only overplaying one side a little bit here. And, of course, that's anecdotes. And anecdotes aren't data. Anecdotes aren't arguments. We have to be careful that we never become the people that do that. But it is important to calibrate our response to whatever reality is. Here is the final... Soundbite, I want to share with you. And I remember saving this one because I think this is a really bad argument for reparations, even from a Christian perspective. And here we go with Mr. Gibney, who will make that argument.
1: Talk about so, would you say that the principle of reparations is no longer so? If I steal your shirt and I keep it and I give it to my son, is that his shirt?
2: I would share with you my cloak also.
1: Right. No, no, I'm kidding. But is that, does, <laughs> it, does my shirt belong <laughs> to my son? Does it belong I don't to your give son? Give it
2: back, brother. Uh, no, yeah. but uh,
0: it's he has some kind of like. Gotcha question. It's not not a good question. No, if you took someone's shirt, gave it to your son, it belongs to the first person, and you need to give it back. Now, if you can find a way to apply that to your brothers and sisters in the American church in 2022, if you can apply that principle with any kind of coherent, cogent, consistent logic, please do. But that's a really garbage argument, and I think, and also, I hate to say this of this guy because I believe he's a believer. I played some of the most unflattering things that he said, but some really ugly stuff that you you're you're alleging. I mean, at some level, you're alleging it against me, and it, that's not fair. It's not it's not a fair thing to allege that against your brothers and sisters without having a lot more data and information to do it. All right, I, I've gone too long on this. I didn't think I would do this much. It's out there. The Gospel Coalition website tgc.org. You can also uh, find it on YouTube. It's called the Good Faith Debate Series. Again, there's one on gun control, one on pro-life movement, one on woke church or wokeism, and now one on how to handle race, uh, r- racial injustice. And I'd love your thoughts. I gave you a lot of mine along the way, and you heard from two very articulate, smart people on the topic today. If you have thoughts you want to share, it's Corey Truax Show at Gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at Gmail.com. You can also find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and share your thoughts there. When we come back, I want to give you that very annoying gun argument I've been hearing with regularity. We'll do that and more when you return for the rest of the show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, I've got one soundbite. I'll go fast, and i, I got to get on to something else. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Near the very end of the debate, there we've been going through today on the show, the moderator asks, "Hey, Mr. Gibbony, you know don't don't you think it's been, uh, it's it's an odd thing that m- uh, Black Americans, Black Christians are so so aligned so closely with the Democratic Party, with all their other issues?" And he says, "Well, of course, the Democratic Party was the party that wanted wanted freedom and uh, wanted equality and." wanted to pass all these these bills that were so fundamental. Now, he's got his history impartially wrong on that. But second, I wish he and another group would realize their own instincts and how they might need to be adjusted. His instinct was, well, these are the people that were for me, and so I'm for them. Equally, in the, in the American church and the expression that we're in right now, the Republican Party is the place that says to Christians, we like you. We think you're okay, we think you're an important part of the country, and we want to protect you from those who would do you harm. And so there's a undue loyalty to a party because they say, we want you, we want to protect you. The same thing happens on the other side, and it's good for the Christian to say of uh, both. I wash my hands of that. I'm, I'm going to do the most faithful thing I can but not identify really hard with either party. Okay, I, I told you, we, we got to do some other stuff today. I don't want to do that for the whole show. Uh, let's go here. I don't understand how so many anti-gun folks feel like the question, why does anyone need an AR-15, is so compelling. Why does anyone need something that can shoot that many rounds in that little bit of time? And Jim Acosta on CNN seems to use it as his absolute question of supremacy. Once he says it, he won. It's actually how I felt about a lot of secularists in the 90s. In the early 2000s, when they would argue against Christians, they felt like if they could get the shellfish, they won, or mixed fiber clothing. If they could just say mixed fiber clothing in the law, and why do you eat shellfish? Uh, and you don't follow the rest of the, the laws. They, they felt like they won, and their argument was very stupid and very immature. This is—I feel the same way about this. Why should anyone have an AR-15 Ar- argument? I came up with three. Maybe you might want to use these if that ever comes up in conversation with a well-meaning family member, and you want to humbly and calmly say, oh, hey, that's an okay question. Let me tell you why I think someone might need an AR-15. Number one is the practical reason. and This is not kind, but I'll try to say it kindly. The number one reason is it's none of your business. I'm an adult. The, the, uh, the product is a, a legal product. I would never belittle you and treat you like a child by asking you to justify to me why you want something that's legal. Stop trying to parent me, please. So the practical reason on why anyone would need an AR-15 is, that's none of your business. You should live your life and I'll live mine, and you should leave me alone. That's practical. Two, philosophical. For philosophical reasons, someone might need to have an AR-15. Here is the, even outside of Christianity, old philosophical answer when it comes to ownership of weaponry. The philosophical line has been, I need to be able to defend myself with the same force or weaponry that I can expect within reason that someone who might assault me might have. So in this world, oh, this is actually really good. It's the same reason uh, someone says, well, what are you you saying anyone could have a nuke? No, I'm not saying anyone can have a nuke. I get to have the weaponry that someone might assault me with if it's reasonable for me to expect, they would have it. It's not reasonable for me to expect that someone might attack me with a nuclear weapon. It's not reasonable that someone might attack me with a tank. It's not reasonable that someone might attack me with a mortar round. It's very reasonable that someone might attack me with what is ultimately not a super uncommon thing. A semi-automatic rifle. There's literally millions of them. It's it's very realistic that a home invasion might happen, that I might be assaulted with one. So therefore, it is totally philosophically normal for me to have the same weaponry that might attack me. And again, that goes for grenades. I I actually didn't know I was making a secondary argument here. Another argument that gets made is, where do you draw the line? Well, that's a pretty good philosophical line that I don't have. I get to defend myself with the same weaponry that might attack me. Second philosophical point. So one, I get to have the weapons my attackers might have. Two, I know everyone's doesn't like it and makes them uncomfortable, but we're supposed to have weapons because the government might go crazy. That's uncomfortable for folks, but I mean, I've, I've given the illustrations before. Ask Assad in Syria, ask the former president or leader of Egypt who had superior air air power and tanks, ask them if people with guns can throw off tyranny. Look around the world, all over the place, the last hundred years, if the populace is armed and tyranny comes, even though the government does have better stuff, the government has better surveillance equipment and better tanks and planes, a armed insurgency causes enough problems to sometimes win, if not get concessions. So philosophically, why might someone need an AR-15? Well, I might have a government that goes totalitarian and I have to have a way to address that. So, Practical point: Why should someone have an AR-15? Well, well, one, it's none of your business. Two, I need to de- I need to be able to de- defend myself with the same power someone might attack me. Three, the government guy might go nuts, and I I want one. If that happens, by the way, I don't have one. I have one gun. It's a very it's very lo- uh, low impact. That's just for home security. I'm not into guns. I don't like guns. I think they smell bad. I think they're too loud. I have no interest in them but I am interested in, philosophically, the the freedom of it. So there's a practical reason, philosophical reason, and then there's a theological reason. I never thought about this until recently. I was listening to the gun control debate from that Gospel Coalition debate series, and the guy who was arguing in favor of Christians having guns made a point I I never really heard, I hadn't thought about. But he talked about my my requirement, my responsibility to my neighbor to be able to defend my neighbor if my neighbor is in trouble or being assaulted. But then more starkly, I, didn't, I did not recognize, because I guess because I've never been a family man, the idea of having a wife and kids to defend. That there's nothing righteous about being in a situation where you can't defend your wife and kids. It's a theological imperative that I am doing what I can to protect the safety and security of my family. And so, when we get that inane question, why would anyone need an AR-15? It's none of your business. I'm going to defend myself and my family. And if the government gets crazy, they need to have a deterrent. Those are the reasons. Easy enough, right? Okay, next. Um, uh, Let's do this one. Oh, yeah. This one gets gets on my nerves pretty good. I don't know if I'm ever going to get over it, guys. Stuff that just, it's so normal to say now around COVID-19 that you could just get censored and banned for if you said it just just months ago. Uh, from the New York Times, here's the, here is what came into my email box from the New York Times, this sentence. The idea that masks work better than mask mandates seemed to defy logic. It inverts the notion connected to Aristotle's writings that the whole should be greater than the sum of the parts. They have a whole article here about something that I was saying two years ago in the summer of 2020, saying that, yeah, of course, I mean, on the face, that's kind of a double entendre, prima facie on the face. Yeah, of course a mask would work in theory. Yeah, of course. If if you're saying a, a virus comes out of your mouth and you cover your mouth, the idea that less virus gets out, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, logical. Now, when you mandate everyone wear them, but there's no... There's no uniformity on what kind and what quality. No one even knows the rules. So they're constantly adjusting it. They're, it's not tight to the face. They're cloth masks. They're bandanas. They're gaiters that you pull up over your ne- over your face that you have have around your neck. Of course, you put a stupid law in place. And of course, mandates are always a bad idea, but also ineffective. But listen, two years ago, if I have said mask mandates are ineffective this podcast gets slapped by Spotify with a big tag on it that says, get your COVID information from these sources. And now the New York Times can just say it. It's no big deal. Everything's fine. Then maybe we'll finish here. We're coming up on Pride Month. Actually, by the time the show comes out, yeah, it'll be June 1. It's, it's a really troublesome, bothersome time for the believer. If you don't know, Uh, In the United States, somehow or another, we've decided to have an entire month in the middle of the year dedicated to LGBTQIA, hut, hut, hut. It's a football cadence. All of the various alphabet people, a month for their pride, a pride in their sexual attraction and their identity. And somehow or another, the group has become so culturally ascendant that every company and corporation feels like they have to do their marketing, their social media, their TV commercials, they all have to bow the knee to the LGBTQIA plus 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 God. And so, I, as we go into it, I just uh, there's, there's I don't think there's anything to do. I I don't necessarily want to be actually I will straight up say this. I don't think it's productive to be snarky. To, to go at pride, pride Month in an aggressive way. I mean, just that just antagonizes people. It's not helpful. There's, there's also true things we can say. I'll see the memes out there that just straight up say, hey, the rainbow was originally a, a symbol of God's promise and his faithfulness to his people. It's not meant for pride, for sexual deviation. That's not snarky. There's a way to say that that's sarcastic and aggressive and snarky and it's not helpful, Someone's trying to make a joke out of it. But it's it's worth recognizing that's where we're headed. And as conversations, if they happen to come up, it's one of the... Uh, let me restart. When those conversations come up, here's what I would hope for you. Boldness in the truth. Now, we're not backing down. Sexuality is God's good gift and God's good creation. Sex outside of anything except one man and one woman in marriage, is deviant. It deviates from God's design. And what we feel towards that is not triumphalism, that finally the wicked will be punished one day for their deviation from God's good design. We want to warn the wicked. Some of those warnings will sound dire. Some of those warnings will sound more quiet and subdued. But while we respond, I think both both things are important. It's important not to uh, the word I'm looking for is acquiesce at at work or on the internet or whatever to make it appear that we are going along to get along. We are the people that speak the truth, but we do speak it lovingly. We're not we're not mad at those folks. Uh, we We'd love to see we'd love to see the gospel respond to our sexual deviant culture and to see renewal. You know, I've been thinking lately, the Old Testament prophets, when prophesying against cities and nations, they would often be prophesying against sexual perversion. And then when I think of things like Nineveh some, and some other places, Babylon, it's about their violence, how much blood they shed. And then I think about where we are in time and where I live and how the things I primarily see from my, my country is sexual deviancy and violence. So maybe while it's a pride month for the unbeliever, it probably needs to be a month of lament and repentance, lamentation for the culture in which we live. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another new edition of the Courage Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.